0: Thank you for coming to this public um, talk and conversation on this special topic. Um, Let me just say a few words on behalf of Duke University Chapel and also the Office of Black Church Studies led by Dr. Ebony Marshall terman here at the Divinity School. Welcome to all of you here uh, for this public talk about pastoral leadership from Ferguson to Flint. Our guest speaker today is the Reverend Starsky D. Wilson, a pastor, a philanthropist, and activist pursuing God's vision of community, marked by justice, peace, and love. He is president and CEO of Deaconess Foundation, pastor of St. John's Church, The Beloved Community, and co-chair of the Ferguson Commission. Through St. John's Church, Reverend Wilson has led congregational activism on numerous issues, including youth violence prevention, Medicaid expansion, public school accreditation, voter mobilization, capping payday lending, and raising the minimum wage. He also leads, as I just mentioned, the Deaconess Foundation, which is a faith based grant making organization devoted to making child well being a civic priority in the St. Louis region. He serves on various national boards and has been a recipient of many awards. He earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Xavier University of Louisiana, a Master of Divinity from Eden Theological Seminary, and is currently pursuing the Doctor of Ministry ministry degree from Duke Divinity School. In 2014, Missouri Governor Jay Nixon appointed Reverend Wilson co-chair of the Ferguson Commission. A group of 16 citizens empowered to study the underlying conditions and make public policy recommendations to help the region progress through issues exposed by the tragic death of Michael Brown, Jr. In September 2015, the commission released the groundbreaking report called Forward Through Ferguson, A Path Toward Racial Equity. Which called for sweeping changes in policing, the courts, child well-being, and economic mobility. Through his leadership on this commission, he has been thrust into a national conversation about policing, racial justice, and how hashtag Black Lives Matter. His visit is timely for the Duke University community. Amid the various campus conversations and tensions around the issues of bias and hate that sparked campus town hall meetings last semester, and also the creation of the university's task force on bias and hate. There is much work to be done, serious and difficult work for our campus community and the nation to move towards being a beloved community for all people. And certainly one area where that work is being done is in the area of race and faith. Some recent examples here on campus include the Office of Black Church Studies, um, Race and Faith Dialogues, or the Duke <laughs> Chapel Reed's discussion of Todd Nahisi's Coates' book, Between the World and Me, and more recently, even Franklin Humanities Institute's um, evening of Reflections on Charleston. So when a community is faced with such difficult struggles as Ferguson and Flint and a racialized past and present, my own pastoral posture is to listen, lament and lean into hope. So today I invite you to listen deeply, to truthfully name and lament the painful divisions and injustices that are still with us, but yet also seek hope. As Reverend Wilson, a Christian pastor, puts it in one of his signatures in his emails as he was signing off, he says, in Jesus and justice. Reverend Wilson understands that those two words are inextricably bound if we are honest, truth-telling, justice-seeking, and hope-bringing people of faith following the gospel of God. Reverend Wilson's lip service matches his life service which is why he not only is concerned with truth and reconciliation, but the truth of reconciliation from Ferguson to Flint and even to Durham and Duke. So without further ado, let's welcome Reverend Wilson.
1: I thank the Powery for this opportunity um, and to thank um, the Office of Black Church Studies, uh, Duke Chapel, uh, and uh, Dr. Ebony marshall terman uh, for um, co-sponsoring uh, this opportunity for me, quite frankly, um, to return to a place of my initial lament. Um, this wasn't a part of the talk, but um, I was reminded that on August 9th, 2014, when I found that Michael Brown had been shot, I saw it on social media and began to speak to uh, parishioners of mine who were closer to the issues. Um, I had several responses. Um, the first response um, was to note that this was actually something different. It was a Saturday, um, and 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 I don't believe in Saturday night specials uh, as far as preaching is concerned. Uh, so the message was done. I have went out. Uh, to work out in a neighborhood wide near the church. Uh, I was there at the church trying to make sure other things were ordered and prepared uh, for Sunday Um, but this seemed to be different. I got word from DeMarco Davidson, a young man who's a member of our congregation about what was going on and um, had this initial visceral response about care for African American young men that caused me to rip up the sermon that I had written, uh, prepare a rewrite Uh, Go to my office and pick up copies of a book uh, called Cut Dead But Still Alive uh, by a friend of Gregory Ellison. Um, Bring copies of that book to the sanctuary the next day. Put it on the altar. um, Have them sit there and then call for all of the congregation members who work with children in the church or in the community to capture a copy, to read it, and to reflect on how we should do our work differently as church. And to... Provide a copy of that reflection to me by the second Sunday in September, which is when we celebrate Christian Education Sunday, as it aligns uh, with usually being the Sunday closest to the anniversary of the bombing uh, of 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham, Alabama. The next day, um, I got up, preached, shaking hands with folks after worship. I had a conversation with Reverend David Girth, who's a community organizer, faith-based community organizer in our church. And he asked me after service, he said, what do you think is going to happen? Quite frankly, I don't know that anything's going to happen. I think the six-week rule is going to set in. Um, this rule by which you just wait six weeks, if you can manage it for six weeks, it will go off the community's attention. You can uh, push it out of the headlines. Uh, and he was asking, do you think people are going to be so upset that there will be an uprising? He used the word riot, but I intentionally used the word uprising. I said, man, they don't do anything. I almost okay. wish they would said that. I shook his hand, um, went back home, grabbed my bags, got on a plane, and flew to Durham for a week-long intensive for the D-Men program. By the time I hit the ground, a young man by the name of Adrian Walker, who's a photographer, young man I met when I was doing youth ministry actually, campus ministry too, University of Missouri St. Louis, was calling me to ask, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, Pastor? Well, I said, it'll be OK. There already been some community meetings ordered. I said, well, there's a meeting on tomorrow night. Marco's going to that. If you can go to the meeting Tuesday at Tracy's church. Then we'll be covered. We we'll can talk about the things that we can do in response to those meetings. He said, no, I mean now. I said, What well, what's going on now? And he began to send me texts of pictures of the uprising that happened on August 10th when, uh, as I've described in other settings, uh, when young people of our community looked down at the body of Michael Brown, and looked up at one another and decided they weren't going to go inside until someone gave them some answers. So that week I had difficult focus, difficult time focusing on the lectures and the dialogue in the classroom. And I wrote and you triggered the memory. Um, I wrote that week and it published in our local paper. Um, a lament for michael brown and us so my pastoral sensibility was around care and lament Uh, and now um here year and a half later um i process and try to find ways to make sense of what these couple of years have meant for our community and for myself uh and for pastors broadly um as michael brown's name has entered into Uh, A litany of names uh, that we continue to call uh, from across the country, including Sandra Bland and Laquan McDonald uh, and Rakesha Boyd, Rakesha Boyd and Renisha McBride, um, Oscar Grant. And so uh, in as much as we do that, I appreciate the opportunity that you have given me uh, to reflect, to reconnect. and to see that these rooms actually fill up when they have D-Men students here, nobody else is here. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, there's 13, 14 of us sitting in a room like this, and I, I don't really believe—I didn't believe there were other Duke students. Um, uh, so, thank you for this opportunity. We will um, seek to focus our comments on on something that we believe, or um, we've been told in conversation, has garnered some attention. Uh, in the postings, as we talk about, uh, going from Ferguson to Flint, uh, but specifically on pastoral leadership for what we have come to call American apartheid. So we'll begin uh, with that provocative terminology uh, around American apartheid, see how we have connected it uh, with our historical reality and why, uh, and then seek to make some uh, recommendations for um, How pastors may go forward within this context of social analysis that we've defined as such, if that's okay with you. And then hopefully have time for some questions that may um, challenge our own thinking uh, about these topics. Um, We use this term uh, American apartheid, of course, uh, connected to uh, this reality in South Africa, um, the existence of the system of uh, governmental segregation from 1948 to 1994. Uh, here, uh, we note this term uh, directly uh, connected to and meaning uh, in a structural analysis from the Afrikaans, um, the state of being apart. Uh, it came to, of course, in the 1950s and 60s to be a more violent system, not just segregation or separation itself uh, that is state sponsored. Uh, but because there had been resistance to this reality, we also began to see state sponsored violence for the sake of reinforcing it. Such that the violence became a part of the definition of what apartheid meant. It wasn't just being separate or being segregated or being apart in one's realities, but rather the state-sponsored violence that came to sustain and to reinforce such separation in that context. Damn. Segregation it has been noted by Alan Patton is an active word to suggest someone is trying to segregate someone else. So, the word apartheid was introduced. Now it has such a stench in the nostrils of the world that they're referring to what he calls aut- autogenous uh, development, uh, this reality um, that this uh, goes on on an ongoing basis. It, it was not, this term American apartheid is not new to us, quite frankly. In 1994, authors Massey and Denton uh, produced a book that talked about the racialized nature and the segregated nature of American housing began to map housing policy as a form of apartheid, state-sponsored segregation in the United States of America. Um, there's been other work that has built upon that, but connecting this policy that may be related to a specific area of our life that actually segregates, segregates us residentially or spatially, but then also can segregate us as it relates to our life outcomes and our life circumstances. It is this area of life circumstances upon which I build the most traditional tie uh, to apartheid in America. That when we began to study, in our experience of the Ferguson Commission, the life circumstances of people, we saw segregated outcomes in life circumstances that suggest, that were reinforced by policy itself. What do I mean? One of the things that we found was that if you live per zip code, if you live in 63105, which is our county seat, uh, the city of Clayton, Missouri, um, versus living in 63106, North St. Louis, near where my church is, on am in 63107. 63105, you actually live 18 years longer than if you lived in 63106. The greater disparities we found when we looked at the research from the University of Missouri St. Louis Public Policy Research Center, and the St. Louis County um, Office of Research that helped to drive the St. Louis County um, Strategic Plan. What we found was that if you lived in predominantly white Wildwood in West St. Louis County, you literally lived some 40 years longer than if you lived in predominantly black Kenlock. So what we're talking about is generations of difference in life outcomes, circumstances, and expectancy based upon zip code. Now these zip codes matter for us in the st. Louis metropolitan region because of this matter of regional fragmentation. There are in the st louis area ninety two municipalities within uh, within a metropolitan um, a metropolitan statistical area of two point eight million people and why does that matter? It matters um, for one reason because um, there are two major indicators of racial segregation in metropolitan areas one of them Is the number of municipalities per 100,000 people? Another is the number of school districts per 100,000 people. The St. Louis metropolitan area is the only area in the country that ranks in the top three in both categories. And so this fragmentation, this zip code analysis reinforces an understanding of segregation um, that is reinforced by policy in our context, but I actually argue that we see it by other policies across the United States of America. Before we push there, I want to actually center another definition. And this is where I want to build most of my conversation and my work. I actually believe that the authority to define the circumstances of oppression uh, lies with the people who are oppressed. Mm So, rather than going by the definition uh, of Massey and Denton here, or going by these historical definitions of political scientists who assess what's happening in South Africa, I rather want to go to the theologians of South Africa and listen to the definition from the Kairos document in the second edition in 1986. The Kairos theologians defined apartheid as a system whereby a minority regime elected by one small section of the population is given an explicit mandate to govern in the interest of and for the benefit of the white community. Here are three core elements of that definition. A minority regime, elected by a small section of the population and governing for the benefit of white people. As we consider this element of a minority regime, we think about the demographics of the United States of America and the growing demographics. First of all, we note that people of color are a rising majority in the the United States of America. A U.S. News and World Report analysis of the the Census Bureau Bureau data uh, as it relates to children in America notes that according to um, estimates in 2014, there were more than 20 million children under the age of five years old living in the U.S., and 50.2% of them were minorities. More than half of the nation's children are expected to be part of a minority race or ethnic group by 2020, according to the U.S. Census Bureau report. Some of you have heard these reports that by 2040 or 2044, uh, some put these numbers will be what some have called a majority minority nation or minority majority nation. Um, I want to actually go further than that and and, and point to a couple of other areas. Uh, Pew research data suggests that from 2000 to 2013, there are 78 counties in 19 states from California to Kansas to North Carolina, that flipped from majority white counties where no single racial or ethnic group is majority, according to um, this Pew research. And overall, 266 of of 2,440 counties are less than half white. So as we talk about the localized nature of this reality, we're already living in communities where there is a majority of minorities already. And the expressions of oppression happen at local and county levels. So these things matter. Now, I'll lift up one other. Stephen Phillips uh, writes in a new book, Brown is the New White, um, about a new American majority. Uh, He uses uh, an analysis of the 2008 and 2012 um, exit polls, uh, from the Obama elections to argue that there is already a fifty one percent progressive majority in America, but they do not have ruling authority. What he suggests is that people progressive people of color make up twenty three percent of the voting of the citizen voting age population in America. Progressive white people make up twenty eight percent and that together they make up fifty one percent of the citizen voting um the citizen voting population in the United States of America. Right. So in these estimates, just over three thousand, three hundred and eleven million people live in the United States. 217 million of them are citizens over the age of 18, the citizen voting age population. And other the eligible voters, 62 million are people of color, 155 million are white. And using this Obama voting percentage as a definition of progressive, just over 50 million eligible voters are progressive people of color and another 61 million eligible voters are progressive whites. The coalition of progressive whites and progressive people of color who are eligible to vote stands nearly 111 million strong or 51% of the eligible voters in the country. Now, what does this have to do with Ferguson and Flint? In both of these places, you see another trend as we talk about this minority regime ruling over a majority population. Here we see, if we look at Flint, uh, we see a total, I'm sorry, let's look at Ferguson first. Total population of 21,000 people, 67% of which are African-American. As we note that, as we talk about, uh, we'll, we'll get into this voting in the interest, but I, I can never leave this alone. Because when I see that 67, I automatically see 93. That's 93, you may ask. 93% is the number of African-Americans, the number of people, a percentage of people who are arrested mm-hmm. in the city of Flint. In the City of Ferguson, okay. So that DOJ stat always jumps to me when I say that 67. I automatically see the 93. I apologize for getting out of order. <laughs> so as we think about minority rule um, of this majority, we note that the election prior to the last election of City Council officials in Ferguson, uh, well, actually we can just go to the last election where there was a 29% voter turnout. That sounds low. Until you put it in a conversation with the 12 percent voter turnout that was in the mayoral election before, so when we talk about a 67 percent majority uh, only elected by 12 percent or 29 percent of the population. Then you begin to get this sense of minority regime. When we go to Flint, Michigan, we begin to see demographics that show uh, an African American population of 56 percent. And there, of course, not only do you have, um, we can push and talk about people being uh, elected by a small section of the population, but there, of course, because we're in Michigan, we have another matter to deal with altogether, people who are not elected at all. As far back as 2002, in intermittent kind of areas, you've had emergency managers in Flint. So as we talk about being elected by a small section of the population, we also must add to that a rollback of democracy. So I talk about it as exclusive democracy or a rollback of the concept of inclusive democracy in America. So what we find is that when we have emergencies or when we call something an emergency, um, and so we should note that emergency managers in Michigan were previously called emergency financial managers. So financial crises could be called forth and then someone could be placed in place in order to have dictatorial authority or it would be called administrative authority. Um, but setting aside mayors or setting aside uh, city councils. Uh, and usually this happens in communities of color. It is noted that as recently as 2014, 49% of the African American population in Michigan uh, live under an emergency manager. So emergency managers um, take authority in places like the city of Atlanta, the city of Flint, the city of Detroit, Benton Harbor, Uh, in uh, all in Michigan, but also over public schools, like the Detroit public schools, as we consider public schools, Detroit public schools, Highland Park public schools as well. As we consider public schools, now we turn again our attention to Ferguson. Okay. Because another matter where we roll back inclusive democracy in America and where we've been doing it for at least the last 10 to maybe 15 years is as it relates to school districts. Because here, and, and we should note that as late as 2014 in Flint, a lot of the arguments for the elected school board have been trying to stave off an emergency manager. What we find, if we look in Ferguson, particularly in the place where Michael Brown's body lied, and we consider his narrative, we consider three things. Number one, the Canfield apartments uh, and the Northwinds apartments where Michael Brown lie in the middle of the street serve as a dividing line they are drawn just into the riverview garden school district This will map it'll be in a minute on the other side of the dividing line is the ferguson floreson school district the ferguson floreson school district is fully accredited the riverview garden school district is not accredited it's unaccredited michael brown jr was one of the last students to get the credentials to graduate from what was then the Normandy School District. It is now the Normandy Schools Collaborative because it has a new category that was just made up for them called non-accredited. These categories of accreditation matter because when there is an unaccredited school district, they can be put in place a special administrative board setting aside the elected school board. So much so that the Riverview Gardens elected school board has just stopped meeting so altogether. There is no elected school board anymore. St. Louis Public Schools, which continues under provisional accreditation status, has been under an elected has been under a special administrative board since 2007. And just last week, the SAB in St. Louis and in Riverview Gardens were extended for three more years. So by the time the St. Louis Public Schools come out from under the leadership of a special administrative board, which circumvents its elected leadership, and let's just say this for the record. All of these communities are predominantly African-American. By the time they come out, it would have been a decade without elected oversight or accountability to the people for what happens in the schools. So as we talk about this, what we're talking about is the rule of a minority, either unelected or elected by a severe minority, ruling in the interest of white people. Why do I say in the interest of white people? Third part of the definition, public policy promoting inequity. So some of it we've already gotten to, right? But I'll just put it in another context. I had to have um, a conversation uh, of lament with a a colleague of mine who's in Wisconsin the other night. I had to text him because my research, my depressing research statistic of the day (laughs) was that he had to join me in a certain disgrace. St. Louis. In Missouri, St. Louis as a school district leads the nation in the disparity for out of school suspensions for African American boys. The states that lead the nation in this disparity are Wisconsin, Michigan, and Missouri. So, as we talk about uh, policies that disproportionately advantage or disadvantage um, people. Then we begin to talk about how the state is actually sponsoring and initiating the kind of segregation of outputs and life expectancy and outcomes that help us to meet especially when we're looking at social determinants of health that help us to consider um, this matter of uh, of of apartheid. The inputs of such policies lead to the impact of segregation of life expectancy and outcomes under a framework considering social determinants of health in this sense, apartheid status is reinforced both with implicit public policy biases and explicit public health consequences. By connecting the dots between the two, we find a link to the more traditional definition of apartheid. So that social analysis in mind, what does that matter for us as we talk about pastoral leadership? I give a few different elements and then be done. I want to suggest to us that pastoral leadership uh, in the context of American apartheid and that we have suggested has to be thoughtful about, and it has to be intentional about, where it is positioned, what it pursues, and what it purifies. Where it is positioned, what it pursues, and what it purifies. Um, this uh, conversation, I build on the work, uh, kind of jointly in the work in two different places, of Marty E. Stevens uh, in Leadership Roles in the Old Testament, uh, and the work of Peter Paris uh, in African-American Leadership, uh, Conflict and Diversity. Um, So here, we think about the Old Testament triplex. Uh, We we do not leave behind the role of the sage, but uh, we focus squarely on the Old Testament triplex of priest, prophet king. Um, And here, I'll try to make some connections between historical models um, and uh, and some of what we've seen and some of the ways we sought to operate uh, in Ferguson. First, the Old Testament role of priest. Here, we read this responsibility for both proximity and purification. Uh, Stephen suggests that as priests were ritual specialists set apart for religious service and worked in the ancient cultists of the formal religious life, the priest's core duties in this realm included facilitating the community's work related to sacrifice, purification, divination, and teaching the law. My argument is that the vocation of the pastoral leadership within the context of American apartheid must intentionally work to discern and purify both actions of rage and reconciliation as God leads um here we require skill sets of discernment radical listening pastoral care and of healing but i want to argue that we see models for this um if i go to peter paris that the model here is actually malcolm x and if i go to the work in south africa then we see it in our bishop desmond why, why, why malcolm x part of the work that we saw ourselves needing to do in ferguson quite frankly is to do things like clean like primary work i want to Give this role of purification. Primary work of a priest is determining what is holy, what's profane, moving things from the clean category to the unclean, the unclean to the clean, right? Taking things that people identify as unclean and making them clean. Part of our responsibility in the in the role uh, for public presence of clergy in the uprising was to clean up language like riot, (laughs) to clean up pictures of young people. Who were righteously indignant perhaps in the line of the christ turning over tables in the temple and help people to understand that this is and can be seen as holy work part of our role was to purify by suggesting that maybe it is the case that the church is not lacking presence in the context of the Movement for Black Lives, perhaps the church is present, and the spirit has fallen there on the movement, not on the sanctuary. And so the priestly work is to purify the work that God is doing no matter where it is. And I argue that part of what Malcolm X has done in the Civil Rights Movement is purify that holy rage that has come from a people who have been oppressed. And of course, we see what Archbishop Tutu does is purify in another direction the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission by sacralizing its proceedings with the lighting of candles and the use of incense. He makes this a holy place, even though, quite frankly, it was a place of political accommodation. We got to remember. Uh, historians remind us that it is President de Klerk who asked for the term reconciliation to be added to what was to be a truth commission because of course reconciliation has come to mean so much to so many that it doesn't mean anything to anybody (laughs) Can can I add something to it
2: reconciliation
1: for the sake of relevance in this moment I'll say this and add this to it reconciliation much like community oriented policing uh, that's right. has come to mean so much to so many that it doesn't mean anything to anybody. And the clerk believed that by adding the concept and the end of reconciliation to what was called as a truth commission, he could actually get to the kinds of political accommodations that would preserve him and those who did wrong and we should also remember that before the before the gathering of the commission there had already been law passed to circumvent reparations locking in locking in um, the ownership of property and setting aside any transfer of property from being a potential outcome of the truth and reconciliation commission but as far as the password role we note that these are proceedings that can be made purified, and this is part of the work that Bishop Tutu is up to with this ritualistic presence, right? Showing up in full priestly garb, uh, lighting of candles, use of incense, right? We also note this this pastoral role of the prophet, Old Testament prophet. Here we speak not simply of uh, proximity and purification but here we speak specifically to the role and responsibility within participatory democracy. We lean upon Marty Stevens' argument that central to the character and role of the prophets was the call to speak publicly or announce to others, connectedness to God, and a peripheral social location that was still within the realm of community. It's also helpful to note that this location was at times in seats of social power at the Royal Court. Even though most were not supported as such within a prophetic guild. Our argument here is that the vocation of the pastoral leadership within American apartheid must be positioned in such a manner as to hear and cultivate people's voices while advancing an articulation of God's will for God's people to people in power. Our historical models for this, if we go on Paris's work or Dr. King, it is hard for me ever to speak of Dr. King without also adding Ella Baker. Uh, And so I think that becomes a historical model. Um, and if we went to South Africa here, we're talking about the work of the Reverend Dr. Alan Obrebusak um, and his call for the establishment of the United Democratic Front as a critique not only to the apartheid government, but also to the African National Congress, which itself had begun to engage in atrocities. Um, he also calls it forth uh, as an organized political approach to respond to the realities of people. Now, here my argument is the charisms and skill sets that we need for pastoral leadership in this manner, uh, things that are underrepresented, quite frankly, in most of our seminaries that prefer us to send us forth, are grassroots community organizing and grass tops policy advocacy. If we will do this work effectively, uh, we must find ourselves positioned in places both with the people and with those in power. Now, this is the hard part. Someone asked me earlier asked me this earlier today. How did you navigate being in Ferguson working with this commission? Meeting with people like um, a U.S. senator uh, by the name of Blunt, who 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 you probably wouldn't yeah who wouldn't get down like that. Early. <laughs> um, and and also be with activists like those at Hands Up United. I said the way that I was able to do that is that the people at Hands Up, like Tara and Teff and Tori, uh, prayed for me. Literally, Tara Thompson, one of the founders and directors of Hands Up United, who I actually went to Xavier University with. Um, when she found out that I was having to go back and forth in these meetings with the Attorney General and with the, um, the U.S. Senator and the Governor, said, "You know what? They're gonna snatch your soul. I'm gonna pray for you." <laughs> but it seems to me we must be positioned in manner in order to do this work, right? So, no, so we're not um, only in that work, but we've got to be positioned to go back and forth. And finally, and then we'll open up for some questions. I want to argue uh, for the Old Testament role of king. As we talk about this role, we're not just talking about uh, proximity. uh, We're not just talking about mobilizing proximity and participation, proximity and purification. We're not talking about just participatory democracy where we must mobilize the voices of people who are affected and translate and sometimes connect that to people who are in power. Uh, But also there are times when pastoral leadership for American apartheid will call for us actually being those people in places to make policy as the king, if you were, as it were. Ideologically speaking, the earthly king was to administer the territory in keeping with the will of the divine king. It is helpful for us to remember. We we often forget because, you know, kings go off on their own stuff. Right. Um, But it's helpful for us to consider our space and place in that way. If we think first of the divine king and think that the role and responsibility of the king is actually uh, to be aligned there. The vocation of pastoral pastoral leadership for American apartheid must pursue the institutionalization of the people's interests through the enactment of legislation, regulations, and ordinances that guide communal life with a focus on social equity. It's important to remember here that the royal office fulfills its charge through policy, not programs. Indeed, if the monarch is, as Stephen suggests, the steward of the vision of God uh, for social equity and human thriving, This must be the goal of public policy. Unfortunately, much of the American church's understanding of this external call has been tied to outreach through social programs. I write on this in an article for Governing Magazine uh, last year. Programs, we must understand, are short-term interventions that create temporary improvements in the wake of challenges. Policies, on the other hand, are covenants we collectively choose to live by as articulated in legislation and regulation. They inform our socially acceptable mores and ethics. Pastoral leaders with any aversion to taking on such a role would do well to hear Stevens out on this point. She notes that the earthly king serves as the conduit for the blessings of the divine king on the nation. Peace, prosperity, justice and righteousness. We see historical models for this in the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. And of course, I claim in this prophetic mantle, in this work, Nelson Mandela, as we talk Uh, about South Africa. As we talk about Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., it's helpful for us to remember, this is easier for Dr. Terman as a child of Abyssinian, that he was (laughs) Mr. Civil Rights before King was Mr. Civil Rights, Mm -hmm. and that much of the legislation that we see stewarded, including things like Social Security, are stewarded through committees that he makes possible as a US congressman, Mm -hmm. that the role of policymaker is actually one that we can effectuate as well. Uh, This is the work we were doing when we led the Ferguson Commission. Why go there? Why trust it? So that we could keep a policy conversation a policy conversation. It would have been easy, quite frankly, to allow powerful interests to take over the conversation.
2: Because
1: people had already begun to have their press conferences where they shipped water to Flint. I'm sorry, I wasn't in Flint, I was in Ferguson. Um, <laughs> but it's the same model sending water, programmatic charitable response, calling for the governor to walk away in handcuffs based upon a breach of the public interest. The work that was done and just approved yesterday, the first petition after six of them were attempted, just yesterday was the approval of a petition to put on the November ballot the recall of the governor. That's justice. That's policy, right? And that requires the engagement of participatory democracy. So what are we talking about here? In Ferguson, what we're saying is the Save Our Sons program that one of our large black organizations wanted to come out with and say, if we just put enough black men in ties and train them for jobs that we'll never hire them for Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and allow large multinational corporations that refuse to hire them and refuse to pay taxes in the city of Ferguson, circa Emerson, to write a check that they would have written anyway And just to write it big and to give them a press conference, a programmatic response, that would have carried the day. I tell people programs are driven by philanthropy, so this is where I own my responsibility. I really am going to stop it. I can hold up the day. In June of 2014, the St. Louis metropolitan area was named by Charity Navigator the most charitable metropolitan area in the country. June of 2014, it's funny how the calendar works June, July, August Michael Brown lay in the street for four and a half hours The charitable programs are not ever going to get it done And the church, the desire to see God's vision manifest in the world whether we understand that is the rainbow people of God the beloved community, the kingdom of heaven all of these things must be manifest based upon our collective articulation of our interests and our values and that happens in public policy so part of our preparation must be to operate in those spaces. And I want to say that's that's very clear, basic preparation to understanding things like public health conversation and public policy. And it's really, really basic stuff, like the stuff I learned at Union Missionary Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas on Saturday mornings with the youth department, like Robert's Rules of Order. The most contentious vote we had in the Ferguson Commission process, because we looked at all these broad social determinants and we looked at a number of issues of social inequity and some of them were economic. Marty Stevens reminds us that one of the core categories that the Old Testament prophets talked about was economic justice. Let's not forget. The most split vote we had, because we had a pretty balanced commission, people from the business community, people from the corporate community, people who had no elected officials, but different conserving interests uh, as well as uh, progressive ones. The most split vote was the vote to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We spent half a day on that in committee because people wanted to attach all these provisions well we it can be 15 dollars an hour increased over time to get to it over the certain number of years indexed per the national index for this and the state index for that da, 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 da. I, I have to sit through all of that because what i knew was all i needed was for the thing to say 15 dollars an hour And it came out with $15 an hour with about two paragraphs after that. And when it came to the full commission, I knew that they weren't going to be in the room. I was. And I was going to co-chair the meeting. And so I offered a well-articulated short amendment to cut off everything after 15 (laughs) Right? but this is the way we've got to do it and uh, the need for us to understand these basic processes also came forth just a couple of weeks ago when the city of Ferguson came after it had fully negotiated a consent decree with the Department of Justice and decided to go along with the decree uh and had everything ready to go and then came into a full committee meeting a full uh, council meeting listened to the community and decided to uh, articulate seven amendments one of those amendments gutted the whole consent decree but they voted to approve the consent decree with these amendments when they essentially, one of them, totally gutted it. but they came out and did PR and spin and said, we approved it, we're glad to have come to this agreement. Loretta Lynch wasn't wasn't falling for it. And the next day, she had a 39-page lawsuit against them. But there are people in the community who thought, because they didn't understand Mm -hmm. basic parliamentary procedure, Mm -hmm. that rules and governs our public life So this is our call. Our call is to fully engage as pastoral leaders and to understand and analyze what is actually going on. What is going on in America is apartheid. It happens first in communities of color. It is growing in counties across the nation. Uh, But as this minority regime continues to guide what is becoming uh, a country that is primarily people of color, then what we're getting closer to is apartheid. And as it strips away through financial emergencies, like the ones that are declared in our school districts, or natural disasters like the one that was declared in Katrina when we militarize public works. We're moving closer and closer to this definition. The pastoral responsibility is to purify holy rage, purify authentic spaces of reconciliation. The pastoral work for us uh, is to pursue God's justice and social equity through public policy. And the pastoral work may also very well be Uh, to position ourselves in the places where public policy is made in those positions uh, so that we might uh, change things for god's people this is my offering to you and i appreciate the opportunity to share we're going to open it
0: up with some dialogue and i think james todd will let me know when we only have time for one more question. Um, and what I'd like to do is just pose one question, not as many questions as Dr. Marshall Terman uh, does, <laughs> but one question, um, because there was some resonance in the room around this uh, and it's, it's related to the notion and the idea of reconciliation and how you don't necessarily uh, in your work talk about truth and reconciliation, but the truth of reconciliation. So if you could comment a bit more on what you mean by that, but then also uh, because I I know your work uh, more closely. What is the relationship between equity and reconciliation? So just those two pieces and then we'll open it up. Um, By
1: offering My suggestion, thank you very much, um, is that um, one of the challenges I had uh, with um, my co-chair, who is a deeply committed, conserving evangelical Christian from the commission was he kept wanting to go out to the church community and engage them in the work for the sake of reconciliation. And his understanding of that, um, he, he, um, he assumed was universal, so he would do things like bringing me books about Jesus. I, I graduated from seminary,
2: um,
0: and you know, and
1: I went into seminary with Jesus. I came out of seminary with Jesus, um, and <laughs> not always the case, right? But he would educate me on these. He was he was educating me on these things, uh, and then seeking to bring certain Christian leaders in, really for the sake of validating what they were doing which was largely programmatic and conversational around relational reconciliation at an individual level and and making that racial reconciliation, right? Bringing in a black speaker, you know, having a fellowship for three months with a black church, that kind of stuff, right? Um, and so it wasn't until I brought him a book
2: <laughs>
1: that that stopped. And so I brought him A copy of The Politics of Jesus by Aubrey Hendricks. Uh, And they talked about how radical revolutionary Jesus became meek and mild and talked about equity as a setting of right of social circumstances. Uh, And so he stopped bringing me books after that. Uh, I think he read it. Right. So so part of what I talk about, we confuse this language. um, I talk about equity on a progression from access. Right. People talk about the civil rights movement. I said, well, we're talking about the civil rights movement was access to opportunity. And those who have followed a longer progression in America in the 1980s, were talking about diversity, which speaks to who's in the room. What can you see uh, that is distinct in a context? And then we moved faithfully, hopefully to a conversation about inclusion, which is not just who's in the room, but who actually gets to make decisions right Not who's at the table, but who got input on the agenda and the menu. Right. To equity, equity has to do for me with outcomes. We talked about it a little bit in this kind of public health framework. Um, Equity said if we want equity for students rather than access for students and we don't give a consideration just to who we let in. But what are the supports that are needed for those whom we let in to make sure they get out at the same time? And my suggestion is reconciliation only comes after equity. The reconciliation occurs between equals. And so in order to get to reconciliation we must place ourselves and this is part of the title of the ferguson commission report uh, we must place ourselves on a path toward racial equity in order to get to racial reconciliation and that has to do with setting policies in place that not just equalize um, circumstances and access for people but equalize
0: life outcomes for people so that's that's kind of my suggestion very helpful i think for folks in the audience to to get that understanding in a deeper way. Questions? Yes. And let me also say, please focus your question so that we can get as many questions as possible in and limit the comments, not a whole sermon. That would be great. Um, So Professor Bradenton, the other Luke, yes.
2: Uh, Thank you for a wonderful uh, presentation. Just two quick questions. Could you um, narrate us? a a bit about the kind of question of philanthro capitalism i was really interested what you're saying about program and policy and we've seen in some like newark the role of zuckerberg and uh, kind of schooling districts Uh, could you kind of locate that phenomenon in in the analysis and then the other quick question was a lot of the kairos document and i I love the fact you drew on that it's very powerful and i thought your your analysis of of america is very very potent a lot of that document deals with the question of this oscillation between non-violent direct action and violent revolutionary action. Can you reflect on that? It's a, it's a particular thing I'm, I'm interested in. It, I haven't heard much reflection on that, and you, you touch on it with the question of the riot, but it seems to me that's a crucial bit perhaps of that priestly role from unclean to clean, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think as it relates to philanthropy, we've had a couple of problems, real challenges. Philanthropy is one of the least regulated areas of American life. Uh, And what we have done is, first of all, we have decided based upon a context of scarcity to place additional regulations on the nonprofits that we work with and that we invest in. For the sake of their work and then we turned and took those same standards and put them on us the problem that created was it restricted the ability of philanthropy to be what it has been historically in america which is social venture capital for social change and so now we've moved even further to this era of social impact bonds and pay for performance or pay for outcomes, where we incentivize social work based upon it getting outcomes. And we say that we do that based upon the context of efficiency, and we started doing that quite frankly in the context of scarcity uh, post the Great Recession, uh, but we're out of that now. Um, And what I think has unfortunately happened is we've more constrained ourselves and also reduced our capacity to actually make change, to invest in the things that matter organizing advocacy that have longer-term outcomes. I tell people all the time: if you really want to talk about leveraging your investment, this is the decision we've made at Deaconess Foundation, for every dollar that is invested philanthropically in community organizing advocacy and community-engaged strategies, letting people decide what the answers are, you actually have a return of $115 in social benefit, right? So actually I get a better return than the people who call them, who are using these kind of philanthropic Uh, Philanthropic capitalists, as you know, strategies, because I'm leveraging $115 for every dollar I put into Hands Up United and the Organization for Black Struggle. Right. I know that I'm going to get a greater return. I just got to be more thoughtful about how we approach it. Uh, The other piece around um, uh, nonviolent direct action. Uh, versus uh, armed conflict. Uh, I think part of that is a negotiation of the process of Kairos document, right? One of the things that people lose is that it really is a democratically engaged document. One of the reasons why I use it and like it is because there are ways in which there are parallels between that document and the way we approach the Ferguson Commission report. Is Rather than going behind closed doors, we actually engaged 3,000 people in the process. They gave 30,000 volunteer hours, and the community produced that report with 189 recommendations. Uh, But within that diversity, I think there's some some trade-offs that have to be made. This is a conversation I want to have more. Uh, I want to have more conversation about this with Alan Busak, actually, who's going to be here next month. And one of the reasons why I want to have it is because of the principal stance that the UDF took over against the ANC, saying that, you know, it is their suggestion, right, with the UDF, uh, is that you can't have an all-black kind of manifestation of what it means to be the kingdom of God. And you also can't have one that engages in this kind of uh, violence itself you can't you know violence can't beget violence and the like, so I think that's still an open question. I think what we've got to do though is is work to frame again, as I noted, holy rage and look at where things come from that our discernment has to be more than this surface reality uh, that that somehow um, castigates behavior without thinking about where it came from, uh, and some of that re- will require us to learn the language of public health and trauma. Um for the sake of understanding what Lee Butler calls not post-traumatic stress disorder, but protracted traumatic stress disorder, that people are still living with these kinds of stressors uh in their communities. And so I think we've gotta we got to be able to speak that language if we're gonna do our pastoral work as well.
0: We there is a class that starts in here at 1.30. Um so what we're gonna do is take one final question and then Reverend Wilson will be out in the hallways for those of you that might want to ask him further questions. Talk with him afterwards. Okay. One. Yeah, one right in light of the presidential debate, has um, he shown any
2: interest? In no one has for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: question about the presidential candidates and if, if they're connected to. Reverend Wilson's work.
1: Yeah. So uh, I've had a conversation with um, with Senator Clinton, Secretary Clinton about uh, the work uh, just before it came out. Uh, and we are set to have a follow up conversation and we, it just didn't happen because of logistics. Um, I've talked to the staff team from the Sanders campaign about the work uh, as well. Uh, and we've assessed, I, uh, I should say, we, some of our foundation staff team has assessed kind of the positions of both of the candidates vis-a-vis the commission's work uh, and the calls there. Um, uh, To speak to alignment, this is not endorsement, but speak to alignment. Um, The policy work as articulated in the Sanders campaign is more consistent with some of the things that we see, uh, both in the commission's work and the broader call, the policy calls and things like Campaign Zero and the Movement for Black Lives. But again, that's that's the analysis of what's on paper. That ain't nobody's endorsement.
0: And we thank Reverend Wilson.